Heavenly Father, thank you for the fellowship of the saints. Thank you that when you save us out of this wicked, lost world, you save us out of the world and into the body of Christ. Lord, we thank you for the saints that are scattered around the world that listen on the Internet. We pray for their well-being, for their sanctification, for their encouragement. Be with them, and Lord, help them find your remnant of faithful ones in their area. And we commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. As I said, we had a little recording failure last week. So I want to give an overview or a summary of the verses that we covered. Let me just read them again. Verses 3 through 5. Since you were seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, and who was not weak towards you, but mighty in you. For indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? And as I pointed out last week, there's a key word that is found in these verses, and that word is dokemine, a proof. Okay, so in verse 3 it says you're looking for proof, dokemine, and then he brings that word back up only with an alpha privative, which negates it in verse 5, unless you, adokimas, fail the test. You're not approved. So the word has to do with, uh, dokimas has to do with an examination that would look at something carefully in order to determine its true nature and quality. Okay? The word in a secular use could be used for an assayer, someone who looks at minerals to see what's in them. Okay, so it is to, to carefully examine, put something under a test, The goal of the test is to bring out whatever the true nature is. Now, the play on words that's going on here is somewhat of an irony. Okay, and here's the irony. They are questioning whether Christ is speaking through Paul. But in doing so, they're actually, how would you say it, putting themselves under a test because, see, their faith, their existence as a church is due to Paul's apostolic preaching of the gospel. So if Paul is preaching the true gospel, and Paul is preaching Christ, and he came to Corinth and preached that true gospel, and they believed what he preached and therefore became converted and became a church, if they start questioning whether Christ is speaking through Paul, they're actually questioning whether they're Christians. Okay? Because they're Christians because of Paul's message and their their faith in it. So... That is the overview, that's the point of these passages. And I apologize again that our recording failed last week. Now, there is a theme, besides the point of view here of the test, there's also this weakness power motif. Weakness and power. In verse 3b, weak but mighty. Then verse 4, A, Christ was weak in the sense that he submitted to crucifixion, 
didn't save himself from that, but he lives because of power. And then in 4b, we are weak, yet we will live because of the power of God. All of this is a takeoff on chapter 12, uh, 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 10, where Paul says axiomatically, Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay, so this has been a theme from earlier in 2 Corinthians, weakness, strength. And that passage was in the context of his thorn in the flesh. And God determined to allow Paul to keep the thorn in the flesh because his grace is thereby at work in Paul. And he says in verse 9, My grace is sufficient, for power is perfected in weakness. Now, that theme, and I know we talked about it last week, so excuse me any redundancy, but I thought it was important enough that I want it on our website, because people will go listen to these Bible studies for years to come. And... That is something that we need to consider as being literally true. And it isn't just melodramatic. It isn't just Paul trying to make some sort of a rhetorical point. But it's literally true for each one of us that God works through our weaknesses. And our weaknesses are much more useful to God than our strengths. (laughs) Exactly. He said pride. Now, let's just consider that for a moment. Let's consider that idea. I know it to be true myself because of personal experience. And as I probably said last week, when I was young and hardly ever sick, hardly ever had any difficulties as far as anything that slowed me down or keep me back, I was just full of myself. Way too much. And my message was wrong. Not only was my attitude wrong, my message was wrong. I believed in human ability. I believed in my ability. And my preaching was predicated on a belief in the power of the human will. And so I preached from that. The idea was, if you want to be a good Christian, here's what you need to do. Do more, try harder, make better decisions. I just believed that way. That's what I thought, okay? And I counseled people that way. Make better decisions. Pull on your own bootstraps. Do, do what you're supposed to do. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and the, the Lord called me up short on that. And I realized, starting in 1986, that I was teaching air. And that the reason people were discouraged by listening to that message is because it just flat out isn't true. God changes lives by grace, not by human willpower. And when I finally started understanding the true nature of the gospel, the gospel of grace, that is, the message began changing. But for me to change, I had to go through um, a decade of misery and sorrow. And that was the decade of the 90s. And my health went bad, family battles, just all these things happened. And... 
by the end of that decade, not only did I believe in my mind that it's all by grace, I knew in my heart that it was as well. And, and God's power is literally perfected in our weakness. He uses our weaknesses. So that's why he allows us to have weaknesses, because his grace really operates as we just totally depend on him. And every thought in our minds about our own abilities is a thought that is a hindrance. Okay? And not that we don't have abilities. I'm not saying that. Not that we don't have talents. Yes, we do. We have gifts. We have talents. We have things that God has made us able to do. But we should think of those as gifts of his grace, not self-developed attributes. Okay? What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians? He asked this, What do you have that you haven't received? And if you received it, why do you boast about it? Okay, so anything we have that's useful to the Lord, whether it's talents or weaknesses, are received. And we need to continually be reminded of that because that's what sanctifies us, and that's for our spiritual good. Absolutely for our spiritual good. As I've said many times, I saw somebody send me an email, and they quote this John Newton at the bottom of the email, and it's from the movie Amazing Grace. Newton wrote that song. And in the movie, at the very end of his life, uh, he was in his church as a volunteer, and he says, in the quote I saw in the email, he said something about, I can't remember very many things. I'm an old man, I can't remember everything, but here's the two things that I do remember. I'm a great sinner, and Jesus is a greater Savior. There's an expression of strength and weakness. Never did he forget how sinful he had been as a abusive slave owner and a guy that he used to traffic in slaves, you know, and he had a ship. And he became a Christian and repented and lived the rest of his life serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, yes, Glenn, uh, could you bring the mic to Glenn? Every time I think of that scripture where what do you have that you did not receive? It puts everything up against God's glory. Yeah. In other words, if you did receive something, he gets the glory for it because uh-huh. he's the first cause. Yep. So humility is a continuum that you can't get past because he's the sovereign creator. Absolutely, Glenn. I, that's a very good point. And we've been discussing this a lot lately because... We're trying to get our minds around this concept of means of grace. And remember that verse that says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And the means of grace are designed to keep us humble. Because we're reminding ourselves what God did for us, not what we did for God. And I, Ryan preached a really great sermon last Was that last week when Ryan preached? Yeah. Oh, wow. I loved that sermon. That really, oh man, the whole idea of remembering. He went into Peter, and it just dovetailed on our discussion earlier on means of grace. He says, I know you've heard these things, but I write them to you to stir you up by way of remembrance. Don't think that you can learn about God's grace once, and then you've got that down, so let's go on to something else. Don't think that you can learn about the gospel once you got that down. We know this, we got that down. The remembrance is absolutely necessary, and communion is about that, as Carl taught not too long ago. 
And many of the things in the Scripture are telling us over and over again. And that's what I used to just totally miss. I don't know how I missed it for how many years. I was saved in 71, and it was 86 before I understood what was wrong in my thinking. You're reading through the New Testament. How come Paul keeps talking about the gospel over and over and over again? He's talking, look, just look up the word gospel, how many times you find it in the New Testament. See, in my thinking, I was thinking, well, that's something you get at the beginning and then you move on to something else. And I was missing the implication of why Paul was always talking about the gospel to Christians. Just totally missed that point. Because I always thought Christians need to learn how to. Gospel is how you're saved. Then how to is a sanctification in my mind was an engineering problem. Like, an, like any American, you know. And, and no, you don't go from the gospel to something else. The gospel is a sanctifying message that reminds us that we're great sinners and God in Christ is a greater Savior. So, but weakness and power, proof, okay? Remember they had said about Paul that his letters are weighty, but speech was contemptible. Paul will prove to be formidable when he shows up in person, but he just assumed not. Paul's more than willing to go there. Remember the, the sin problems in Corinth that he's been addressing in both First and Second Corinthians and in our non-extant severe letter, the one that he had written to them. And so he wants to come there and continue to be meek. He wants to come there and stay weak if needs be. But he's telling them that if he has to, he'll come there and exert his apostolic authority with full force and bring church discipline on the rebels. But he just as soon not do that. He prefers the meekness. He has weaknesses, but they're not in a spiritual sense because he's not, he, as he said earlier, he, he has full apostolic authority. Verse 4, for Jesus, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we live with him because of the power of God directed to you. Remember, we talked about baptism in the last few weeks. And remember Romans 6. Romans 6 reminds Christians of their baptism. Reminds us that we were buried with Christ and likewise were raised in the power of God. And as Christ was bodily raised from the dead, we have the promise that we too will be bodily raised in the future. And baptism is a visible, tangible symbol of that reality. Okay? So why, why is baptism important? It's important because if you read Paul's epistles, he refers back to it as an object lesson for Christians. So if you don't get baptized, you've robbed yourself of the object lesson. All right? It's something that we look back to and remind ourselves of the implications of. Paul does that in Romans 6. He does it in Colossians 2. Colossians chapter 2. When these people were thinking they needed all these new ideas. Remember the people that were going to act as their judge and Sabbath days and asceticism and touch not, taste not, do this, don't do that, all these things. Paul says you were baptized. Yeah. So God has done a complete work of grace in your lives, and that's something to remember. You don't need these other additions that were directed their way by these false teachers. 
Unlike the super apostles, Paul was broken. Paul was humbled. Paul understands strength and weakness. The super apostles that came to Corinth to trouble the church, they're called super apostles by Paul himself. They gloried in their own strength. They gloried in their power. They had a different definition of power than Paul had. Their definition of power was that they could do signs and wonders, and they were mighty indeed, and they could do all these glorious things. Paul's definition of power was the cross, where you die. That's the power of God. It's revealed through the cross. You can see that. I think last week I talked about that from 1 Corinthians 1. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 1, you'll see the power of the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about it as well. We also referenced last week Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which is the fact that Jesus himself, though having the form of God, existing from all eternity as God and with God, humbled himself and came into this world to be crucified by wicked sinners. So Jesus modeled the whole concept of power in weakness and serves, therefore, as an example for us. And that's exactly what Paul said in Philippians 2, where he says, have this attitude in you that was also in Christ Jesus, which means an attitude of humility, an attitude of being reminded that we didn't do this. We didn't figure something out. We're not more clever than everybody else. We're not more powerful than everybody else. We're not more savable than everybody else. We're just wretched sinners that God showed mercy to. That's what we need to remember. Now, let's go to verse 5. I'm just I'm doing a reiteration because our recording failed last week and the memory card got full. Now, let's look at verse 5. I don't think I actually spent time on this verse anyhow. Test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? So here we see a very important passage that's pertinent to all of us. We need to know, indeed, whether or not we are truly Christians. There is such a thing as false assurance. Did you know that? There are people that would lower the terms of the gospel to the barest minimum in order to grant assurance to absolutely everyone. And now and again, I get an email from one of those persons who's so disappointed in me to find out that I believe in lordship salvation. And they usually are enemies of John MacArthur, those, those sorts. Now, the position that they would take is this, that if anything more than faith as mental assent to certain facts is teaching salvation by works. So faith means giving mental assent to facts about Jesus, and nothing more is necessary. So anybody who believes that, say, the Apostles' Creed is saved. And there's no necessity to find fruit. There's no necessity of a life being changed. And that person who is saved through mental assent continues to be saved no matter how wicked they go on and live their life. In fact, one such individual told me that if somebody had valid mental assent for a millisecond and served the devil the rest of their life, they're still saved. So that's basically granting assurance to everyone. And the question is, is that a biblical message? And I'd say, no, it's not. Yes. 
I've had experience speaking and sitting under the teaching of some of the some people like this, and I just wanted to comment that it comes in a, a range too, because some people will add little parts and, and it ends up being the same thing. Like they might say they have to receive Christ. Okay. So in, in their mind, if they just say the sinner's prayer and meant it, then they're saved. And yeah. That's good if enough. you meant the prayer, that's all you need. Right. So that's more than mere mental assent, but it's also less than the gospel and the Bible. Right? It's less than saving faith. <laughs> right. Or, or they need to say that, well, we, we don't really know who the, who the saved are, but if, if they've professed Christ at all, we have to trust that God has saved them without being concerned for their salvation, which is bad too. Yes, it really is, because if there is such a thing as false assurance, and we know that there is, okay, just from the Scriptures, then people with false assurance are people that need to be objects of gospel preaching because we don't want people to be lost. We want them to be saved. In fact, we did a DVD, the SO4J shot a DVD, and some of you have probably seen it, but I think it's ten reasons why people think they're saved when they're not. And, and the whole DVD is about false assurance and the true gospel, what the true terms of the gospel are. Okay, so why is Paul saying test yourself to see if you're in the faith? Well, two reasons. Number one, given the behavior of some of the Corinthians, you've got to wonder whether they were in some cases. Number two, here they are questioning Paul's gospel, and it's because of his gospel that they were saved to start with. So they're questioning Paul as the apostle. They've got to be questioning their own salvation. So there's a little irony going on there. But nevertheless, the verse applies. We should test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Okay? Now, I'm not trying to rob true Christians of assurance. Absolutely not. Assurance is important. And we need to have assurance of our salvation. And it's important that we have it. But it's also important to make sure we don't have false assurance. So here the word test, there's two words in the Greek, test and examine. They're, they're given different translations in English, which is appropriate. The word for test in other contexts means to tempt. But here it means to discern, and it's in the imperative. That would be an exclamation point. Test yourselves, imperative. It's emphatic and it's important. And then another imperative, examine yourselves. Dokematsete is an imperative. Uh, they've been examining Paul, but the reality is they should be examining themselves. And maybe it's examining those false apostles that are coming to them. Examine yourselves and put yourself to the test. See if you see signs of genuine faith. Do you love the gospel? That's a, that's a very important sign right there. Because any true Christian is saved because of the gospel. And I am very alarmed when people who claim to be Christians visit, hear the true gospel, and they're offended by it. And I've seen that happen a number of times. They're offended. I'll never go back there. I'll never want to listen to that again. I don't bother. There's about to be one bit of people don't like this church. You know, well, I, you know, I, don't, I prefer something else. Okay, whatever it might be. That doesn't, that doesn't bother me. You don't have to like it. But you have to love the gospel. Okay? And if you go somewhere and you hear somebody preaching the gospel, don't you know this to be true yourselves? Have you gone to a funeral and actually heard the gospel and rejoiced? Even though it's in a church that you probably wouldn't want to join? You know, for whatever reason. You know, it might be too liturgical or something 
you know, too denominational, whatever. But you, you have to rejoice in the gospel. I've never walked out of a church offended because I heard somebody preach the gospel. If you do, test yourselves. You may not be in the faith. You may be fooling yourself and you think that you're saved, but you're really not. Because every saved person loves the gospel. Every saved person wants to sing about the gospel. Every saved person wants to hear the gospel. Every saved person rejoices in the proclamation of the gospel. And even Paul would rejoice when people preach it out of vain glory, he said in Philippians. Because he rejoices that the gospel preaches. Why are we like that? Because we know it's the only way God's going to use to save the lost. And we have a passion for the lost to be saved. If you have that passion, if you love the gospel, if you rejoice upon hearing about Christ, that's a sign of regeneration. Because the cross offends the unsaved. But it causes rejoicing in the hearts of the redeemed. Now notice we have both an objective and subjective aspect to this testing. The objective is this. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. When the word faith is found with a definite article, in most cases, you'd have to have strong evidence from the context to conclude anything else. In most cases, the faith means the content, the objective content of what we believe. The person and work of Christ is the faith true Christian doctrine. So test yourselves objectively to see if you are in the faith, holding to the truth that's been revealed in Christ, the message of the new covenant. And this content would be, for example, what Jude is talking about, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's the content. So so you have a content that you look at to see what you're actually believing compared to what's taught in the New Testament. And then the subjective is, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test. All right? So the subjective is being indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. All who are truly in the faith through the true gospel are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. So therefore, our assurance is both objective and subjective. Objective and subjective. Turn with me to Romans 8. Romans 8, starting with verse 5. This is an important passage, and I would like to reiterate it. It's been a while since I taught through Romans, although I've taught through Romans more than any other book of the Bible, by far and away. I think probably now seven or eight times I've taught through Romans in my life. Not claiming I know it all, but I sure love learning. (laughs) Romans 8, and this has to do with assurance and has to do with how we know we're in the faith. All right? Romans 8 and verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now, this is not talking about elite Christians versus ordinary Christians. That's a, that's a mistake. Have you heard of people talking about carnal Christians? What's a carnal Christian? Somebody who's lost? <laughs> no, I thought you had an answer. <laughs> Carnality is just like you're, you're uh, 
they're trying to express this where uh, it's like a, a fake kind of a deal, like uh, a person that could be a Christian and then they slipped away or fell away. Or, they, or they're thinking like the world rather than, yeah. But there can be a Christian. Well, it's an oxymoron, isn't it? Because you can't yeah, you can, of the world and of the spirit. Yeah, this, according to Romans 8, even though there was degrees of sanctification, which we would affirm, and there are Christians who sometimes aren't doing so well, but I believe the Lord will always bring them back because of his love and mercy. But when someone is minding the things of the flesh, in other words, the things that motivate them are the flesh. That's what they love. That's what they want. That's what makes them tick. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, all that's in the world. First John 2. That person, even if they're in church, is not, doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Well, let me read on. So, so we, Paul makes his point. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit are things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. So now we have a contrast between flesh and spirit, death and life. Let's go on. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. Now, do you think there's such a thing as a true Christian who's hostile to God? No. That would obviously you couldn't say that. Uh, you can't be hostile to God and love God at the same time. Okay, so this passage is not talking about a subset of Christians that are lesser, but it's talking about the lost. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. Notice the rest of verse seven. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. Not even able, and the word dunamis for power is there in the Greek. Not having the power. Lacking power to submit to God's law. That's what we're like when we're lost. Okay? We're, we're unable. The human inability. This verse is very important, by the way. If you read this verse, verse 7, the mindset on the flesh hostile to God does not subject itself to the law of God, is not able to, teaches the doctrine of human inability. And this verse is one of the many, many proofs that salvation is by grace, not by human effort. Salvation is by grace. In the flesh, we don't have the power. We don't want to submit to God. We're hostile to Him. Now, we may not act it. I know me, before I was saved, I wasn't hostile to God until the true Christians started witnessing to me. You know, before the Christians started pointing out the fact that I was lost, I said, well, I go to Sunday school, and I used to go to Sunday school, and I'm a good, I'm a good boy. And <laughs> you, you don't buy that, huh, Glenn? <laughs> that's just the way I thought. But then when the true Christians are witnessing to me, that's when the hostility came out. It was there all along. But when somebody was suggesting to me that I was lost and needed to repent, then I got hostile. Until God saved me. Verse 8, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, what else do we need to do to establish the idea of human inability? Those who are in the flesh, having been defined by those who do not have the Spirit, having been defined to be those who are hostile to God and lost, cannot please God. Not even able to. Verse 9, now here's the good news. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Okay, so there it clearly teaches that all Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Every single one. 100%. All right? And so there's no elite class of Christians that have the power of the Spirit and lesser Christians that are carnal ones. But all Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. If Christ doesn't dwell in you, you failed the test. Test yourself to see, number one, are you in the faith? Do you believe true gospel teaching? Number two, are you indwelt by the Spirit of Christ? Is Christ in you? When the Bible talks about Christ in us, it's talking about the Holy Spirit indwelling us. You can see that here in Romans 8. Because there are these Christian mystics who would suggest that they, we need to go on a journey inward to find Christ or to find the kingdom of God. Go on a journey inward, that's where you're going to find Christ. No, Paul, even as a Christian, says, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. But then he goes on right after that to talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's what the good is, the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Okay, So a journey inward is a very bad idea. Okay, are you thinking? Look, you think about that. A journey inward is a bad idea. Self, other than examining ourselves to see if Christ is in us, to know that we're saved, and then looking to Him. By the way, Christ ascended into heaven; He sits at the right hand of God. We're indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. Now, introspection, mostly for for anybody who's really a Christian, introspection is a very bad idea. Because you will find what Paul says is in there. No good thing. All right? And it becomes very depressing to think about self. It's very, very... Oh, hi. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think I heard you said that it's not possible for a Christian, a true saint, or a true Christian to live as an enemy um, of the Lord. To be hostile to right, God. Right, right. Well, I thought of a verse, in, and I looked it up in the concordance. Okay. Find it in okay, Philippians. Okay, read it. Uh, Philippians 3.18. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you, weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Yes. That's, that's, a, that's a good cross-reference. That's the same idea. That was in Philippians chapter 3, right? 3.18. Philippians 3.18. That's a good cross-reference. It says the same thing. So, there's an either-or going on here. I want you to see that in Romans 8. This is very important for your understanding of Christian doctrine. There's an either-or. Either we are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, or... We're, we're in the flesh and hostile to God. Is it either or? And it has to do with whether one is truly in the faith. Uh, who has the mic? Back there? Would you explain the difference between uh, examine yourself and introspection? Yes. The, the, the examination that Paul is urging us to do is to see whether or not Christ is in us. We're just looking to see signs of regeneration. Are there signs that God has saved me? And what would, what would be the signs? Well, one of the signs that God saved us 
is that we actually know we're sinners. Okay? I mean, that's why some of our evangelists use the are you a good person test. Have you heard that? You ask somebody if they're a good person because, you know, you want to find out whether you're witnessing to the lost or the saved. So you ask people, are you a good person? And the Christian will say, uh, not really, but God's been merciful to me. And the lost person will say, yes, I'm good. Every time, even if you go into the prisons and ask people in there, they'll say they're good. Uh, we have a video uh, that came from Cross TV where they actually went into prison and interviewed heinous criminals, and they all said they were good. Okay, go ahead. Man won't judge himself. What if you're good because of imputed righteousness? Well, right, but then that's why, that's why we say a caveat. If somebody asks a Christian whether they're good, the answer most Christians will give in order to be humble and to give glory to God is that God has imputed Christ's righteousness or God has been merciful to me, but I don't want to call myself good compared to some other person. Because we know what Jesus said. There's no none good. <laughs> okay? And so we believe that. Yeah. My question on self-examination is, now you've covered faith, but I think that's where most hearers are the most confused because when you're talking about faith, there's different types of faiths. And some are not sufficient and some are. Yes. And do you have a favorite scripture that defines saving faith that you um, can share with everybody here? Probably Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Because there it attributes our salvation by grace through faith. But then it says, it also says, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he before ordained that we would walk in them. They're saying that the fact of our good works was ordained by God before the foundation of the world, just like our faith. Okay? And so seeing that if, if there's evidence that we are his workmanship, in other words, we now love what we used to hate, we, we, we lament about our own sin and we wish we were more like Christ, that's proof that we're his workmanship. And that's what saving faith is all about. But... My favorite is because you can get into churches with a lot of skeptics, which ends up saying, did God really say that? Do you think that really means that? Versus his parable on the children that were brought to him. He says, you will no likewise enter the kingdom of heaven unless you have the faith like a child. Okay. That includes the idea of trust. Yeah. Have you heard of the three Latin words? See, some some languages have a more well-developed, vocabulary about certain ideas. Okay, in English, we just have the word faith, although we have words like trust and what have you. But in Latin, and the, there are three words, ascensus, notitia, and fiducia. Ascensus would be to assent to something. Notitia would be to know it. And fiducia would be to trust now, the Reformers taught that all three are necessary components of saving faith. To know the fact and to trust. And, um, and, and to confess assent. Yes. Ever since I left high school and the protection of my family home, I believed that words meant what they said. And then I went to college and got into all kinds of relativism and this, that, and the other thing. Now, I know that what the Bible says is true. 
I've learned through your examples and teaching here and the other ministers and teachers that the Bible does not contradict itself. But I'm still confronted in my daily life and my own thought process, which is as a sinful person before the Lord who goes to uh, the cross to be saved. Okay, but what I'm confronted with are the tools that the world uses to clarify, so they say, and one of them is psychiatry or counseling. Now, before, um, when the mic was back over here before, there was something about, um, oh, you said, Pastor Bob, you said that introspection will show us our sins, so it's, you know, the truth can't be found in there. But how do I confront the claims of the world that we have to know ourselves or whoever? Okay, okay. all right, I, I understand. Yeah, the, the, the wisdom of the world is not the same as the wisdom of God, all right? And we have, since probably early 20th century, been told that one could, that there's some subconscious, there's something called the subconscious mind or the collective unconscious for Jung, and that in this subconscious lies the secret to why we do what we do and why we think what we think and so on, and that this subconscious was filled with material early in our childhood, and that somehow this subconscious has to be accessed in order to empty it of whatever it is, and so on and so on. Now, as you know, that's not a biblical teaching. And, as you know, believing like that and trying to do that has harmed an awful lot of people. Okay? It really, it really harms people. Okay? And if you want to read some good material about that topic, I recommend Martin and Deidre Bobgan. They have a website, and I think it's something, P-A-M something. He called me the other. I, I love Dr. Bobcat. He is a wonderful fellow, absolutely wonderful. Had a nice conversation with him the other day. And he, he's written a lot of stuff to show why that approach doesn't work, okay? Because the more aware you are of the inner workings of your own mind, the more bad it is. It's, it's really, it's, no. You know, just, just think of this one. Let me give you an illustration, and then we'll go to Casey. Just think of this. Why do we like humor? Or, or let's, let's ask it this way. What, what, what happens when we, we talk to somebody who's funny and they make you laugh? Well, it makes us forget about ourselves. Okay? It, when we're laughing about something, we're not thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about some absurdity or some, some silly thing or some play on words or some clever thing. gets our mind off ourselves. We have a need to have our mind off of self. Meditating, self is one of the most miserable topics you could ever meditate on. <laughs> okay? It's also not a good sermon topic. Paul says we preach not ourselves. <laughs> That's about the worst sermon topic you could have. Okay, Casey. So I could see where somebody is examining themselves to see if they're in the faith, and they're thinking, okay, well, I have been hostile towards God. I have not been as enthusiastic about the gospel as I should be. Where can you discern between the Christian who's sinning and maybe even really struggling with sin and the Christian or, or the self-deceiving Christian that are really not okay. saved? Between a Christian who may be backslid or needing to find assurance or the person who's self-deceived. I think 
I hate to keep going back to the same topic every Sunday, but I, I may do that. I think it comes under the issue of the means of grace. If a Christian puts himself or herself under the means of grace, the valid means of grace, that the word is taught, the gospel's preached, Christian fellowship, we encourage one another. I was just studying a passage in Hebrews 10 because we're going to do it on the radio about forsaking our assembly. A Christian who sits in good, solid Christian fellowship will get lifted out of that, okay, that whatever it is, the sin, the doubts, and what have you. You just, you just get lifted out. You get lifted up, and joy comes to us. But a person with false assurance will not respond the same way to the means of grace. They'll usually get offended. They'll tend to want to go to a church that's more practical. And here's what I mean by that. The non-saved Christian, oxymoron, wants to solve life's problems but doesn't want to be confronted about the need for grace and sanctification. All right? So you can go somewhere where they're telling you how to solve problems based on some concept of human ability. You know, if you have the right information, you can solve your problems. They'll gravitate to that. But they won't want to sit under means of grace because it will offend them. That's the best answer I can give. Okay. Gary Gilley's got a good article on his website, svchapel.org, that just disassembles psychology. Yeah. He has a little booklet he wrote on that as well. Yeah, the problem with psychology, let me clarify my position, being how it's been asked here, because we're talking about you know, testing ourselves. Here's the problem with psychology. I am not ruling out the validity of general revelation. Remember the three categories of knowledge. Special revelation, general revelation, and secret things. The secret things would include either occult information from mysticism or God's future providential will that's not revealed. What we can't know about the future because no prophet told us about it. That's secret until it actually happens. And things that you cannot assess by normal means of knowing, which are occult and they're forbidden. Now let's just look at psychology in this regard. It's not wrong to study general revelation, and some things can be known about people and how they react to one another by observation. All right? And so inasmuch as people have done that, they may come up with valid information. That I, I wouldn't say that's not possible. You can learn things about how kids react and better ways to raise them and better ways to do this, that, and the other thing. They can actually be demonstrated validly without going into any secret information. But here's the problem. The, the main psychological theorists of the 20th century were all dipping into secret information or things that can't be known. Freud's theories about the unconscious mind cannot be proven. It's not observable. There's not enough testing and valid observation and data to be able to prove that. Jung's theory about this collective unconscious really has come, I believe, from a demonic source. It cannot be proven. And so what you have is a lack of valid general revelation blended together with secret things that can't be known to create some new entity that is supposed to cure people's psychological problems. So it's, it's been a very, quite a miserable failure, and you could read Bobkin about that. And, and I've talked to Dr. Bobkin on the phone a number of times, and he says he's not against research psychology. 
He says the problem isn't in the research mostly. The problem is in the therapies. It's the therapies that are harming people. If they want to do research about how people relate to one another and they, and they have a valid way of doing it, whether it's focus groups or whatever they do, fine, it's not, it's not going to be wicked or evil. But another thing I want to say is a general revelation is not sanctifying. You can't get sanctified from any source but special revelation. Who's got the over here? Bob Gan? B O B G A N. Martin and Deidre Bob Gan. They're originally from the Twin Cities, but I haven't been here in over 20 years, he told me. But he said if he ever comes, he's going to visit here. Okay, now let's go back to our Romans 8. We're talking about now testing ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Good topic. And those who are in the flesh are say cannot please God. So there's your inability. Verse 9. However, here's the good news. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So it's an either-or, okay? It's not a matter of degrees. It's either-or. Either you're in the faith, and you're indwelt by the Spirit, or you don't have the Spirit. That's the two categories. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And then he goes on, and makes implications. There is an implication. If we are indwelt by the Spirit, he says we're not obligated to follow the path of the flesh. So we're urged to be sanctified. And then we're then Romans 8 continues to, to say that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, the Holy Spirit leads us, meaning carries us along. The Holy Spirit ultimately makes sure that we'll never be separated from the love of God. And nothing in this created order will ever separate us from God in Christ, who saved us and caused us to be indwelt by his Holy Spirit. So Romans 8, keep that one in mind. It'll clear up a lot of theological error that's taught by those who would teach some sort of either an elitist type of Christianity or a minimalist type of by claiming that you can be a carnal Christian and live however fleshly you want and it won't affect your salvation. Well, if, you, uh, if that idea sounds attractive to you, you may not be saved. <laughs> okay? The Holy Spirit gives us a desire for holiness. I mean, just the thought, just the thought of, okay, I can go out and sin any way I want and do whatever I want. Doesn't that, no, that sounds bad. It's, yeah, it should, it should sound abhorrent to you. Uh, I'm not saying that we can't fall into sin, but we don't like it. A true Christian has an aversion. The pig goes back into the mud puddle. Happily. Happily. That's right from Peter. The pig, the pig loves the mud puddle because it's his nature to be in there. The Christian might fall into mud, but he wants to get up and get cleaned off. No. <laughs> okay. You, you, you throw something that doesn't belong in the mud puddle and they want to get out again, like a cat or something. Okay. Yeah. Wasn't it that, that struggle? Because those who are saved struggle with that rather than go back and because we have Christ in us, we have the power of yes. that sin that's broken over us. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, it's true of a Christian that we struggle against sin. There's a battle. And we know it. And it's real. 
And we don't fool ourselves into thinking we can let our guards down and nothing bad will happen to us. True Christians, that's why just this week, getting ready for some more recording of radio for Hebrews, I was doing chapter 10 where a warning about apostasy comes right on the heels of a warning not to forsake our assembling together. Okay? It says, do not forsake... Let me just get it exact here rather than alluding. 10, Hebrews 10.24. But I was just studying that, and I noticed that, and some of the better scholars are pointing that out too, that one of the possible outcomes of forsaking assembling together is apostasy. There's a warning. Okay? All right. 24. Well, let's start with 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. Even that, when we're holding fast, is based on the idea that he's faithful. Okay? Now, let us, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. There's another, the one another's. There's a lot of those in the Bible. Do we need one another? Yes. We need one another more badly than we even realize. We just don't realize how much we need other Christians around us. We need their prayers. We need their encouragement. We need their admonition. And we need to know that if we did, God forbid, head out the direction of apostasy, there would be a whole lot of people to come after us with concern. It's good to know that somebody is going to care if you fall by the wayside. Absolutely. I, you just need to know that. Somebody's going to come and say, what are you doing? You're a Christian. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> we need to be reminded. Okay, so that's what it says here. We need to consider how to stimulate one another to love. <laughs> there was a guy Diane worked with that was this character. He was an amazing character. He was always, I don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> I won't say what kind of a character he was, but he was a character. And his wife kept saying to him, so-and-so, you're a Christian man. His wife had to keep reminding him it was a Christian. <laughs> she worked there. You're a Christian man. Oh. oh. <laughs> it's pretty bad when your wife has to keep reminding you you're a Christian. <laughs> All right. Let's consider how to stimulate one another to love and good works. Verse 25, not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's always an eschatological aspect of Christian worship. Always. Never forget the eschatological. We are gathering with the idea in our mind that Christ is returning. The day is drawing near. And I need this fellowship so that I'm being prepared for the day. Communion reminds us that Christ is coming. Proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So that is here. We encourage. The word encourage, paraklesis in the Greek, has a range of meaning that includes comfort, exhortation, admonition, or encouragement. There's a, it's what we, whatever we might need, that the paraklesis, to call alongside, the Christian fellowship gives it to us. We comfort the hurting. We encourage the disheartened. And we exhort the wayward. That's what Christian fellowship does. Now, look at what follows on the heels of this in verse 26. For, and that connective is in the Greek. For, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
that no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. So the one who would go, the danger is if we don't assemble together under the means of grace, that we might fall into sin. That's what it says. So that day of the Lord that's coming would be a terrifying thing if we were to do that. Because the judge would be coming and it would be really bad. So I think, I think that many Christians underestimate how badly they need fellowship. And I think that many naively think that Christianity can be something you can just go on your own. You can just do it on your own. It's just not true. It's absolutely, it's just not, I know it's not true for me. I, I wouldn't even want to find out. I, I can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. And just think of the joy that we have. Last Sunday was so wonderful. I can say that because I really didn't do anything, okay? <laughs> this, when, when, uh, when, people, when Ryan just encouraged us in the, in the scriptures, you know, in assurance, and then we had communion. And then we were singing that song about a wonderful, merciful Savior. And I, and I turn around and I see people with tears in their eyes and they're just, they're just thinking, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, thank you. Why would you not want that? That's what I don't get. I, I wouldn't want to miss that. Best thing that happened to me all week was going to church last Sunday. So, uh, yes, try. Can I make an announcement about the Judgment Day DVD? Yes. SO4J wants, they're looking for people that want to pre-order those because we can get a quantity discount uh, for $1.50 each in the sleeves. So if anybody wants to, is interested in that as an evangelistic tool, they could uh, talk to Rick okay. Wagner. Yeah, talk to Rick. Uh, that, that is a great evangelistic tool, and it's really great to give somebody who's going to church that's not a Christian, <laughs> having false assurance. Okay, thank you for letting me go back and get those verses on the, on the recording. We'll see you upstairs at 1030. God bless.